Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians where Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have learned while we were memorizing the Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. This podcast is intended for medical professionals. The information is to be used in the context of your own clinical judgment, and those on this podcast accept no liability for the outcomes of medical decisions based on this information. As the radiologists like to say, clinical correlation is required. This is not medical advice, and even though the magic of podcasting may make it seem like we're speaking directly in your ears, this does not constitute a physician-patient relationship. If you have a medical problem, seek medical attention. On today's episode, we discuss acute flaccid myelitis, the polio-like illness that has been in the news lately with infectious disease specialist Dr. Uzma Hassan. We talk about what the cause may be, how it presents, some of the workup management strategies, and current research with hope for the future. Welcome back to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. On today's episode, we have Dr. Uzma Hassan. She's a double-boarded physician, boarded in pediatrics and pediatric infectious disease, and is currently the division head for pediatric infectious disease at St. Barnabas Hospital in New Jersey. Dr. Hassan was willing to do this on short notice, given the recent increase in episodes of acute flaccid myelitis. So that's what we're going to talk about today. One of the functions of this podcast is to educate physicians about current events, and given the, the recent spike in cases, uh, I think it's important for physicians who see this and don't see this necessarily to be familiar with it, because as an otolaryngologist, I'm not likely to see this, but that doesn't mean that I won't get questions from family, friends, and possibly patients. So Dr. Khan was educated in medical school at the Aga Khan University, went on to residency at the Cleveland Clinic and completed her infectious disease fellowship at Northwestern and is currently, like I said, the division head of infectious disease at St. Barnabas Hospital in New Jersey. So Dr. Hassan, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you so much for having me. So as an otolaryngologist, it's not likely that I'm going to see this, but as a doctor, people might be asking asking me about it. So can you just give us some basics about what is acute flaccid myelitis? Yes, sure. So acute flaccid myelitis is actually a very rare illness or reported in about one in one million um, young adults and children. And it is characterized by rapid onset of weakness or paralysis of one or more limbs and usually these children or adults uh, wind up having some abnormality uh, in their gray matter when we do uh, imaging with an MRI. Um, uh, some of these children can present with drooping of their eyelids, having some difficulty speaking. They can present with a facial droop. And most of these um, patients will have an acute viral illness uh, with you know, runny nose, upper respiratory infection symptoms, uh, sometimes gastrointestinal symptoms about a week prior to the onset of this paralysis. So it can affect a cranial nerve or a peripheral nerve? That's correct. Mm -hmm. Does it usually affect a singular nerve or can it, can it affect a number of nerves? 
Typically, the involvement is is mostly seen in in uh, the spinal cord, and it affects multiple segments of the spinal cord at the same time. In the cases that we've seen, for some reason, the cervical part of the spinal cord seems to be involved more often. Oh, which means that some of these patients might end up with respiratory issues. That's exactly right. Oh, so I thought as an otolaryngologist, I I wouldn't be seeing it, but. If it's a respiratory issue, sometimes they'll call us for things like that, especially if someone is has been on a ventilator for a, uh, a while and, and needs a tracheostomy. So that's so, exactly right. Mm-hmm. So if you are, let's say, you're someone who's who's more likely to see this initially, like a, a pediatrician, a neurologist, infectious disease intensivist, an emergency medicine physician. How, how does this? What, what are some signs that will? that should make this part of my differential? A very good question. So, you know, uh, uh, most of the children who present with this illness will have a preceding illness, so an upper respiratory infection, and then they will come in with a sudden onset of weakness of an arm or a leg. Uh, They complain of a feeling of heaviness or being unable to move that extremity. And uh, I think the key thing is that... uh, to uh, not to dismiss those symptoms, uh, but to take them very seriously. Yeah, uh, a lot of times, you know, children this age group will be labeled as feigning illness, uh, and and I think the key thing to recognize is that this is a real entity. If we start seeing a child who is not wanting to move an extremity, that and especially in the context of a recent viral syndrome, we have to take that very seriously. So what in particular am I looking for on on exam, right? Are there any particular parts before we get into diagnostic tests? Yes. I, I think the couple of things that you will see in the involved extremity is significant muscle weakness. Uh, the children that we have seen will not be able to move their move that, the involved um, uh, arm or leg at all. You will see absence of reflexes in that extremity. And typically, you know, you do not see any sensory symptoms. So they will not typically complain of tingling or a weird sensation in their extremity. Typically, they have intact sensation, but the ability to move that extremity is what gets compromised. Is there anything that we might confuse this for? Yes, there's a bunch of things that can uh, can mimic uh, uh, um, uh, acute flaccid myelitis. Uh, some of these children get evaluated for things like Guillain-Barre, or transverse myelitis. Um, uh, uh, they can be tra- evaluated for peripheral neuropathies or so. So there's a bunch of things that can mimic acute flaccid myelitis. I think the key distinction, distinguishing feature is what we find on imaging, as well as uh, some of the, the CSF findings also help us sort of uh, weigh in on the diagnosis. So the um, CDC had, has now classified uh, acute flaccid myelitis they they group the cases as probable cases versus confirmed cases. The probable cases are labeled based on their spinal fluid findings in, in the context of a child who has um, an exam that's abnormal or paralysis of an extremity. If you see spinal fluid pleocytosis, uh, which means a white cell count of more than five on the spinal fluid, we label that as a probable case. Uh, and a confirmed case is when they have truly have abnormality of their gray matter on an MRI and they are presenting with involvement of, you know, a, a focal paralysis of a limb or so. So that's a confirmed case. 
what what do we think is causing this? So, you know, there's been several viruses that have been previously implicated with acute flaccid myelitis. Enterovirus D68 was uh, implicated in the outbreak in 2014. And usually it's the non-polio enteroviruses that sort of take the lead um, amongst other viruses that have been uh, implicated in cases of acute flaccid myelitis. There is um, the non-polio enteroviruses, like I mentioned, then there has been some cases described with adenovirus, some some cases described with herpes zoster, with rabies, uh, uh, or so. So, so but co- most commonly, it's the non-polio enteroviruses that have been implicated um, in cases of uh, uh, acute flaccid myelitis. Wow, that's interesting because that's something that's been implicated in vestibular neuritis. Yes, that's true. Yeah, so so there are, there are some parallels that are interesting, uh, and what can we do for this? What what does the House of Medicine have for these patients? So so amongst the limited uh, number of cases that we have seen over the years or so, uh, there's been a bunch of modalities of treatment that have been tried. Patients have been given IV immunoglobulin. Um, they have been, uh, uh, plasmapheresis has been tried in some cases or so, and, and variable outcomes. Uh, it, pretty much treatment is, uh, is done on a case-by-case uh, basis, and there's really no data to back up one treatment versus another. Um, the CDC advises use, use of steroids um, with caution in cases of uh, non-polyantrovirus-related uh, non-polyo acute acid myelitis. So, so steroid use has been pretty much reserved to the cases that are really severe, who have, who have you know, phrenic nerve or respiratory involvement, which is where we have used steroids. But uh, uh, again, advised caution with the use of steroids in this case scenario. Is it? communicable because if it's a virus right you should you should be seeing it in in clusters um, but i don't think of of vestibular neuritis or labyrinthitis as, as something that's communicable right you never see that spread through a household where every family member comes in at the same time with vertigo it's it's like a, it's an isolated incident so very good question Typically, this disease is sort of confined to the host in which it it is happening in. So you do not see clusters happening in a household uh, or multiple family family members of a household getting infected. So presumably, though, the enterovirus was contagious. So you might have seen a bunch of family members get a cold at the same time, but only one one person ends up with AFM. That's that's exactly right. Uh, the the that uh, you may see asymptomatic infection, or you may see a milder form of infection in the other members in the household, and you may have another household member wind up with AFM. Oh, you have uh, th- that's been described where you'll have more than one family member, household member with with this. No, actually not. The, we, uh, typically, you will see asymptomatic illness in in other household members, uh, but you you will you will. It is typically just one member of the household who's been who's been symptomatic with AFM. There has not been a cluster of AFM cases described in one one household. Okay, okay, I misunderstood. And um, so, what what do we tell parents, family members? Um, um, if they're if they're concerned that you know oh I, my my child was exposed there was a kid in their class now you know he's my my son 
has a runny nose. I'm worried that he's going to develop AFM. How, how, what, what can we say to those parents? I think the key message to get across is this is exceedingly rare. Uh, uh, and, and uh, you know, like, like the CDC describes, there's less than one in a million cases uh, or, or so. The, uh, and probably flu-related uh, uh, issues are much more common or flu-related deaths are much more common than you would see in uh, a child having antivirus-related um, AFM. So I think it's a constant reminder that that even though this has caught media attention, I think that there are other things that that are bigger troublemakers than AFM is. That that's a great point, actually. That it, that this is an excellent teaching opportunity. So you have an anxious parent that comes in with a child with a with what seems like a cold, and um, making sure that that child and the parent has both have both had their flu shot because that is is more likely to be problematic for them for something that's uh, that's exceedingly rare like like AFM. Um are you are right. you familiar with any research that um that's being done right now that might give us some some hope for some more effective management strategies? Yes, a couple things that are in the works. One is the CDC has has uh, come up with uh, uh has sort of following these patients long term. So, so all of the patients from each state that get reported out, they are collecting specimens, identifying, uh, you know, commonalities in between these patients, and then these children will get tracked long term to see how they recover. Um, interestingly, there has been some great research out of uh, Children's Hospital LA, where there they did um, looked at nerve transfers in the kids with AFM who had persistent weakness. So depending on where they had involvement, they were offered surgery. If they had total paralysis, they were offered surgery at sort of the five to six month mark. Um, if they had one focal limb involvement, for example, a shoulder or elbow, they would do uh, nerve transfers for them at the six to nine month mark. And then if they had isolated one muscle involvement, they did it, did it around a year out from their initial presentation. And their initial results are actually very promising. Um, they had had some children who had significant involvement who are now starting to show, show um, some recovery in, in uh, 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 muscle function uh, in the children who've had these nerve transfers done. So I think that this is extremely promising. I uh, also know that, that uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia is taking this up and and I think in the children who have extreme compromise and and lack of improvement um, or lack of significant improvement, this is a very very promising uh, uh, opportunity or promising uh, um, method of treatment that's out there and uh, and something to to look for in the future to see how these children fare in the long run. That's interesting that you that you brought this up that this is being done at Children's Hospital in LA um, because one of the guys doing this was a resident with me at Georgetown. Um, I did oh, wow. residency at Georgetown, and and he was a plastic surgery resident, and um, I, I think he's been actually featured on the news, and he's been posting on his Facebook page about this. Uh, Mitchell Saruya, S E R U Y A. So I'll uh, I'll find out from him if we can. You know, post post a link to his department. So, uh, Children's Hospital. So, if, so if you have a patient or you know somebody that has uh, a compromised limb from AFM, it sounds like get them in touch with um, 
I guess it would be the plastic surgery department uh, at uh, CHOP or at Children's Hospital LA because there's some, um, there's some promising work being done on, on nerve transfers. Wow. That's, that's correct. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's amazing. That's amazing that they're doing these things. Um, is, are there any other questions that you're getting from family member, um, from, from families or from other physicians uh, that you think we haven't covered yet? You know, I, I, I think the, the one other thing that they, they, people ask is about the safety of the flu vaccine in the context of these viral illnesses or so. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I always say that, that uh, flu is entirely, it, the children who are vaccinated against flu, even if they were to have flu in that season, they get a much more attenuated form of the illness. So absolutely must be vaccinated. I, I think that I, we owe it to our children to provide them with the additional level of protection. And and uh, and uh, that's a question that we get asked uh, regarding regarding the AFM patients. Uh, uh, so far, we... We, amongst the Colorado cluster that we had in 2014, you know, from my understanding from the CDC folks is that all of those children were vaccinated against the flu and they did absolutely fine. So, so the CDC actually even advocates for vaccination in this population. Um, and and uh, that's just something to put out there. Oh, yeah. I can't imagine if, if one of them had respiratory compromise and then were to develop in influenza, that, that would be horrible. Um, exactly. Wow. Well, this, this has been extremely informative. I, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your, your busy day, which was so busy that you actually had a meeting this morning about this illness um, and, uh, and, and about your patients um, because this is such a, such a relevant, uh, uh, relevant illness. Um, one more thing, actually, that, that, that comes to mind. You mentioned the Colorado cluster in 2014, and uh, part of my research for this podcast, I listened to another podcast where that was recorded in 2016. So mm-hmm. there seems to be a pattern there. That's exactly right. Uh, what they have noticed is that we have a biennial uh, peak to this illness. Uh, it looks like that, that um, in 2014, there were about 120 confirmed cases in 30, 34 states uh, between the time frame from August to December. Um, the following year, 2015, there were just 22 confirmed cases in 17 states. 2016, we saw a rise again, 149 confirmed cases. Uh, in 39 states. And in uh, 2017, we had a drop down to 33 cases in 16 states. And 2018, again, we're back up. So there are 62 confirmed cases in 22 states, 155 case reports, which are sort of pending confirmation from the CDC. So you're absolutely right. We see a, a sort of a biennial pattern to the illness. Interesting. But, but as you were saying, the likelihood of getting it, one in a million, uh, the likelihood exactly of getting right. influenza much higher. So when you do have pa- parents that are bringing their children in, and you know what, parents, we're talking, we're just talking about children. What, what's the age group that's affected by this? Very uh, good question. The average age group for this year's cluster has been around four years. Uh, we have seen a, a, a ages up to 17 years being reported out um, uh, or so, but the, the, it's usually the younger age group that gets affected. Interesting. It it almost it's almost as if the illness knows what our cutoff is for what's considered an adult. It's gone up to seventeen. That's exactly right. no, no reported uh, no reported eighteen year olds. Well, That's exactly right. 
Dr. Hassan, I, again, I really appreciate you taking the time out, making the excellent point that uh, this is a, a good segue when a patient brings this up or a parent brings this up to make sure that they're vaccinated for influenza. Uh, and giving us some some great clinical details on uh, what we should keep in mind to to look out for this and to educate our peers. So thank you so much for taking the time. It's been very informative. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Find all previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, and write us a review. You can also visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash physician's guide to doctoring. If you are interested in being a guest or have a question for a prior guest, send a message or post a comment.